Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantelle. Tiso. And this week we have a special guest, um, Alex Boulat, who is a PhD student at UCL. So Alex, what are you researching? So I'm uh, researching attitudes towards EU migrants uh, in, in the UK and I'm looking at two particular locations. Uh, I'm looking at West, the West Ham constituency in London and also Clacton, uh, which was until recently the only UKIP constituency uh, uh, in the UK. Uh, why only until recently? Uh, because Douglas Carswell, the UKIP MP, resigned, unfortunately, mm-hmm. or fortunately for some, <laughs> depends how you say it. Okay, yeah. um, so, Alex, what has annoyed you this week? Um, I would say every week uh, I follow the debate uh, on citizens' rights, the negotiations on the rights of uh, EU migrants in the UK after Brexit, and this week the annoying thing was an article uh, stating that the EU considers to pay for uh, EU citizens' application uh, fees for settled status, which is what the UK government proposes, uh, and I think it should be paid from the UK budget because <laughs> they created uh, uh, those complications, not uh, not the EU. So, <laughs> is there anything specific in the news, or is it just a general like rage every week? Well, it is a general rage every week, but this news was particularly this week. I think it was a couple of days ago saying uh-huh. the EU budget co- will consider, the uh, President of the European Council actually considers uh, to allocate uh, in the next budget. Uh, I think it's uh, maybe over 300 uh, million uh, euros like for those applications mm-hmm. because each application will cost 72 pounds for each person to apply for set of status. Right. It's really, I mean, we talk, it comes up quite a lot in our podcast talking about um, Brexit and migration, and it's actually really good to have someone talking to us that is actually being affected by this, like your your citizen status, your time here is essentially mm. up for debate. So it's actually, as much as we talk about it in a debating sense, it doesn't actually mm. affect our lives. But for you, this is something which you are obviously thinking about and mm. being an activist as well, mm. like almost daily. So it is really important, I think, putting, giving a voice to people like you, especially because mm. you, it is your right, it is about your rights. It is about your life, basically, yeah. Yeah, I think the EU migrant voice perhaps com- even completely lacked in the EU referendum campaign so we had a lot of uh, I analyzed some leaflets from during the referendum campaign last summer and there was like no EU migrant voice in the sense no quote from a EU migrant uh, like any opinion anything like that so there was a lot of talk about speaking about EU migrants about the impact of immigration without giving anyone a voice so we have all those pictures of politicians and so on but no picture of uh, okay the human face of EU migration yeah uh, well, I think part of that mm-hmm. is I remember feeling really annoyed about this at the time that the government ran a really negative campaign being like all the terrible things that will happen if we leave and there was no kind of celebrating like the contribution of EU migrants or like migrants in general and I guess it's because the government had pushed and has for a long time pushed this really hard like anti-immigration mm. stance that they couldn't actually argue like positively being like no we're glad you're here it was just yeah. like well we'll tolerate that because of the benefits mm. it's actually Theresa May uh, who uh, created the host- so-called hostile environment when she was in, uh, mm. in the home office mm. Uh, mm. so uh, actually making the environment so hostile that people will self-remove mm. instead of being deported so that's like the entire idea the ideology be- behind the home office we could refer here to the go home 
yeah, yeah, Vans, yeah, the yeah, 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 which went round kind of high immigration parts of London, was it? It, oh. it was just like a van which said "Go home" on it. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And like, and then the thing is, is like the media reacts like, "Oh, isn't this outrageous?" And that just promotes the message even further. Yeah. Mm. So people actually see those images, and some people yeah. are like yeah maybe they should go yeah. home and it sort of stars mm. that anti like this is not your home get out like. yeah yeah and about the, the voice that that you mentioned Chantal like it's also the mainstream media's fault in a way because for example I was on question time in the audience I went through the selection process they invited me in Islington which is a very Is- Islington North it was the area very diverse constituency Jeremy Corbyn's yeah exactly and I was there in the audience and Dominic Rabb MP who is like a conservative housing minister vote he's, leave he's part of vote was he part of vote yeah, leave yeah well? he's yeah. a hardline brexiteer yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said um he said the sit- on citizens' rights, and he mentioned EU migrants already in the UK, and also British citizens abroad, which is really important. British mm-hmm. citizens in other EU states. Um, it's uh, and I quote, done and dusted. Uh, and I was actually given voice in the filming, and I raised my hand and said, no, it's not done and dusted because even Theresa May said nothing is agreed until everything's agreed. Uh, and, and unless you put this into law, like you can't enforce any of what what, what you agreed so far, uh, and also vote leave promised automatically granting mm-hmm. the same status as now, and of course that status is not automatically if, if if you have to qualify and pay for it. People don't. So, sorry, ju- can you just confirm what settled status is, just for our audience? Yeah. yeah. So this is the UK uh, sp- uh, proposal. Like it's not done and dusted as the government wants us to believe, uh, but uh, it's basically everyone, all the EU migrants who uh, are here before Brexit Day uh, will have a so-called grace period, uh, probably two years to apply to regularize their status um, and to apply to the settled status, um, uh, basically confirming either they were like five years here uh, or they have a temporary uh, status and then after they have five years here they will apply for settled status and this will cost at uh, the moment it's estimated to cost 72 pounds per person and also you'll have to qualify for so you'll undertake some criminality checks and other things that are not really decided yet right yeah. so it's so settled status <laughs> itself isn't just so people are using politicians are using this phrase settled status and they is it not actually clear what that is going to entail at this stage uh yeah they, they are they negotiated somebody then again it is the uk's proposal so unless the deal is done on citizens' rights, and we're in phase two at the moment. Nothing is done already. Mm. There are still negotiations in place. You can't know for sure exactly what the process will be. They want to pilot the settled status mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in 2018, so this year, but it's not really clear what will happen uh, in, into law. And the, the main issue is that vote leave promised automatically granting. Yeah. And this means I, I would have thought, you know, just receiving something in, in my post from the Home Office saying, you're fine, you know, we have you on our yeah. records. I don't have to pay or qualify for I just have a paper that says you know yep. based on simple ID check and mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. that that's it <laughs> you fill in an online form or something you, yeah. we raise this on question time yeah so I, I challenged Dominic's rab uh, statement uh, that was incorrect that citizens rights is done and dusted no deal is done and dusted if negotiations are yeah. still in phase two um, and the BBC took the editorial choice uh, in their perspective, because I complained to the BBC, they said for technical reasons, because my intervention was one minute, and the program happened to be one minute longer than the 59 minutes allocated to question ah. time. Uh, it was the easiest technical choice to edit out my contribution because it fitted the time. No kidding. So you were That's the such bullshit. <laughs> were you the only question that was edited out? Uh, yes, because it was exactly yeah, one minute. That and that have is this oh, that's, so, that's so convenient that you happened to ask a question that lasted for exactly a minute. That's 
that's so nice of you to do that for them. What bullshit! Makes <laughs> <laughs> me so angry. I, I complained for bias, and I, then they said I can ensure there's no bias in editorial choices. It was purely due to timing, technical reasons of timing, and also that my contribution was stand alone. Uh, by standalone, they mean it had no interaction with the panel. Yeah, no connection to the panel. Yeah, but if I challenge with my contribution, I said that statement said a couple of minutes before I intervened is wrong and why is wrong. And then uh, the chair, uh, David yeah. Dimbleby, yeah. um, he didn't allow the panel to comment because he could have said, okay, what's Dominic Rapp's response to yeah. this comment? He chose to say, all right, next week we'll be in you know the next location so he didn't allow the panel to comment whether that was you know deliberate or not i don't know but you know it's not my fault he didn't have interaction after i guess the problem is for eu migrants is you can't vote in general elections so yeah. ultimately I guess the government doesn't feel like it has that much responsibility and the BBC is like well you know do we really have a responsibility to show this mm. because it's not really our problem yeah I, I yeah I, I can see that point and also I think they say the deal is done and dusted because it's a very sensitive issue because a lot mm. of British people have a EU partner or friends or neighbors and if they see this if this is disseminated to millions of people and actually you know I say the deal is not done and dusted and maybe people at home will sit back and think oh really I thought so should I go check and then go check and actually realize negotiations are still ongoing and what issues are outstanding and this will like inform people and they don't want that because it's sensitive so you, you think that it's <laughs> <laughs> stopping you from starting a revolution but on I the streets of Britain because it's so sensitive because they haven't agreed it with other countries we're still trying to ne uh, negotiate trade deals with countries in the mm. EU yeah so if we feel if they feel countries feel like we're treating their nationals not right the whole thing falls apart. Like mm. You can see Brexit is so it's built on like eggshells at the moment. Yeah. <clears throat> and like I said, so the government's trying to walk this tightrope between appeasing the EU, appeasing the right wing on the, the Conservative Party, appeasing everyone, but not doing the right things. Yeah, it's almost <laughs> like maybe we could respect them more if they just chose yeah, you a have, side. You have, to, you have to choose a line. You're gonna yeah, but then she'd have to do a U-turn. So. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you're going to piss people off. You're going you're gonna to alienate some people. Yeah, but the Labour Party's doing the exact same mm, thing. Like, yeah. no one really can get a handle on this because what everyone's terrified of is that whatever they do will have a massive backlash. The thing is, it will lead to a, it will lead to a disaster, but you have to work from it. You have to yeah. work through it. This is the thing. I think the thing about um, Alex being edited out of um, Question Time Wouldn't does it be funny concern... if he then edited that out of it? <laughs> <laughs> that really concerns me is I do know of people and I've said this before on the podcast I've been listening to quite a lot of call-in radio shows <laughs> I know of a lot of people that don't actually realise how their vote to leave is now impacting people mm. like yourself mm. like I don't I think people think it's mm. okay I think people yeah. think everything's alright and I do blame the establishment for that mm. because I just think it's really irresponsible. I think people should be in the know with how um, different political decisions affect people's life, whether it's good or mm. bad or not. People need to know but this mm, stuff. Yeah. The problem is, no one cares. You you only you only do something <laughs> if it affects you and your life. Mm, so yeah. as much as as much as I because I know that it's different. But someone who lives in captaincy in the, in the remote, he don't he doesn't care. So when he all that stuff about immigration and it's, uh, if I feel it's affecting my life, I vote that way. I don't care about the economics of it all or the politics of it all. I don't care what France is doing or Germany doing. I mm. care about if this is going to stop immigration and stop the Polish guy moving next door to me or stop the Muslim doing whatever. 
because that's how, that's what bothers my that's what affects my life. But sometimes, do you think, T, when you give the human face to it's struggle, so, so, mate, it does mm, it mm. does give people a little bit more perspective. Humans, yeah. to, humans have a, uh, sometimes have the ability to empathise with someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sometimes that doesn't even matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you yeah. dehumanise the group, sometimes you something. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, because I know you do a lot of campaigning with three million, probably explain better than me what the three million is. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm doing um, some, I did some lobbying in, in Brussels, just speaking to Romanian contacts about citizens' rights, as mm -hmm. well as I participated in a mass lobby in the UK Parliament and just, you know, send like emails with like information about citizens' rights yeah. to Roma Romanian <laughs> contacts. Like I'm looking at the Romanian side, but the three million uh, basically also British in Europe, which is a corresponding group uh, for British citizens in other EU states. We want to preserve exactly the same rights as it was promised. Mm -hmm. So continue to live the same rights as we do now and uh, we don't agree with settled status because mm -hmm. it strips away rights and we think uh, our status should be preserved by a simple um, ID and residency check and not any other checks that might be imposed on mm -hmm. so many people. <laughs> okay, yeah. so in that context, I think that prior to Brexit, uh, EU migrants weren't necessarily perceived as migrants because of freedom of movement. <laughs> mm -hmm. And now that division has been made quite starkly. What do you think of the way in which um, the three million and uh, EU citizens living in the UK present themselves? Because uh, some might argue that lots of people have already had that, you know, like the go home vans and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Like they're kind of like violent uh, attitudes towards migrants mm. have been there for a long time in this country. Mm. And in a way, EU citizens are now experiencing what it's like to be a migrant in the UK for mm. the first time. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I'm I'm Romanian, so I think I felt like a migrant from the first day I actually okay. arrived in, in, mm -hmm. in the UK. Uh, but many of my friends who are from Germany or France mm -hmm. don't necessarily identify that way. And they think, okay, we're all EU citizens, we all experience freedom okay. of movement. And Brexit came more uh, as a shock for them than perhaps you know, Romanians or like my Bulgarians who, you know, we had like work restrictions as well. So when I went to uni, I had to apply for a work permit to work part time in 2012. So the free movement wasn't really free. And so yeah, when does uh, Romania and Bulgaria become part of freedom of movement? Uh, so they were part of the EU from uh, 2007, but until 2014, you had work restrictions. Okay. So I had to apply for a work permit to work. Yeah, uh, so it's been a very different experience yeah. for you than a French This is yeah. really interesting. Yeah. It's mm. like, which part of Europe gets racialized, basically? That whole thing is consistent with the way the far right and the right see white people see themselves. There's a hierarchy of whites. So if mm. you're from Northern America, Britain, France, Germany, Norway, Sweden. Right, North if you're Anglo-Saxon so from North America. <laughs> no, but if, 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 if what they consider, they consider yourself high whites, and you want you want yeah. the hierarchy, mm. and then you've got the, if you're from the kind of Eastern European, or if you're from, mm. from Italy, or Greece, you're not considered of that higher stock. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this is this is that kind mm. of thing, and it kind of works its way through policy and stuff like that. And it's it's amazing mm. to see in actual policy, but this is the kind of theory that underlines it all. There's a hierarchy mm. of whiteness. No, that is that is really interesting hearing that particularly. So you're you're now campaigning with people who maybe haven't had the same experiences as you. Mm. Um, I would so say af after the referendum vote, I would say you migrants are more united in a way that they have been before because everyone was quite like separate. So I'll hang out with like other Romanian people. I 
know identify more with them in a way than with an EU identity so mm-hmm. I didn't really care about that so much but now I think if you have like a common goal and like yeah. you know everyone is in the situation and everyone will be affected uh, by the by this I think it's more solidarity amongst mm-hmm. EU migrants because mm-hmm. of so the only positive of, uh, yeah. so <laughs> of the, the vote <laughs> yeah because I guess yeah like if you're a German why would you have a reason to care that mm-hmm. Romania isn't discriminated against mm-hmm. so Saskia what has annoyed you this week so um I guess it hasn't this the thing I'm going to talk about hasn't exactly annoyed me I guess the ideas it's talking about has annoyed me but I've been reading a book by Anthony Barnett called The Lure of Greatness England's Brexit and America's Trump so he's trying to explain Brexit and although I don't agree with everything he says I think it's one of the better analyses I've seen of Brexit um and this is kind of like part of uh what I want to do in terms of historicizing current events rather than just seeing everything as kind of like looming out the darkness suddenly and like you know not having any context at all so it talks about um how the leaders of um particularly america and the uk uh have betrayed the trust of the people they're leading um so you know the collapse of the soviet union i think people like clinton and um blair felt like and Bush and like all of those people felt like you know there is no alternative anymore the Soviet Union is gone communism's dead capitalism is rules supreme and that gave them this kind of extraordinary confidence to kind of promote their ideas about what the economy should be so his four betrayals of trust the first one is the dishonesty of uh, the governments of Bush Blair Clinton and Cameron and that kind of you know globalization is inevitable we have to run the economy in this way like the bank's supreme the market supreme like we don't have a choice because this is the only way that the economy can possibly work in an era of globalization and to kind of achieve that um sort of consensus there was like total manipulation of public opinion um you know like blair's known for being a liar and with good reason because like you could never trust anything that's coming out of his mouth um and although it was very popular to start with it kind of became quite clear that it's literally all spin and then after that, second trail trust is the Iraq war um, because they so blatantly lied about the reasons for going to war, ignored like huge public opposition. I think it was the biggest march in London ever in 2003. And then, you know, it failed and wasted billions and billions of pounds. And like, you know, we're still dealing with the consequences of that failure. Um, and then the third breach is the financial crash um which you know suddenly people are living in like horrible like insecurity declining living standards like debt on the back of that he says the fourth breach of trust is the revelation that the economic system that supposedly is totally inevitable and will enrich us all actually is only enriched like a tiny minority of people whilst impoverishing everyone else and i think this is like a really important analysis because it i think it shows that like people who voted for Brexit and also people who didn't vote for Brexit were like have no trust in our leaders because they're not trustworthy and like people like Clinton didn't win okay yeah there's like misogyny and all sorts of things going on there but she was just going to keep the status quo because it benefited her and like her backers and the same with Cameron and Brexit like all he was offering was keeping the status quo so like actually a vote mm-hmm. to remain you're like well I'm just stitching myself up again and you can see why people would be like actually fuck you like 
this government has lied to us again and again and again and like maybe the immigration thing is a big part of it and racism but I think a lot of it is also that just feeling of like sheer frustration spilling over into a kind of like well at least you know something might change it might not be a good thing but it'll fuck the government over so you know that kind of like willful destruction you know I think what that the whole the, the kind of four points you raise about not being trustworthy I think working class people they never trust the government so mm-hmm. when I speak to my mates why don't you vote a consistent theme is we don't trust the government the government nothing ever changes the only people I see getting better and better and we're more off are the people at the top yeah so working class people have disengaged from a long time these lies the trust has always been broken with them because our living conditions haven't improved. In fact, they've got worse. Yeah. And they continue to get worse. So working class people have always known that. So I think it's more of a revelation for middle class people. Well, and lower middle class people, lower, I yeah, guess. Yeah. So to, be, to be shocked at this, to think, yeah, people have... So until the, the 2000 financial crash, this is middle class people figuring out that these people haven't got our backs. Yeah. They haven't got our, it, our savings that are gone. The value of our houses have gone down. Working class, we don't own houses. <laughs> we rent them. So it's not a problem. But you... But this is the first time middle class people are thinking, shit, these people haven't really got our backs. That's the, a really important that's the, a really yeah. important the value, point the who value, actually yeah. voted for this stuff. Yeah, the value of our house has gone down. Yeah. We've still got a five point one million on our loan and the, the, I had, we we, yeah. we trusted you with this government and you fucked us. Yeah, the idea that like life is getting better for everyone. Yeah. It, it, it's suddenly revealed to be the bullshit that it, it is. is. Yeah. yeah. And this is and this is what's kind of shocking, like for the vast majority of people, we knew this, we understood this, but no one listened to us. And this is where the working class vote comes out and we start voting for people who lie to us. So this is how UKIP, but Britain first, this is how they can manipulate us because for years, working class people were saying, listen, you're not listening to our story. Yeah. You're not listening to our story. And the government's like, whatever. Whatever. And then <laughs> UKIP comes along, Britain first comes along and they spin a lie and they start dividing us and dividing mm-hmm. us saying, now you're an immigrant, you're an immigrant, yeah. you're this, you're that, and start dividing us. And this is how this is how they end up getting control. Yeah. But, but for so long, for so many years, you didn't listen to us. Tony Blair abandoned us when he dropped Clause 4 from the Labour Party. Well, but the thing is, though, yeah, I agree with you, but also, <clears throat> you know, I don't know, when you read accounts of the election in 97, it's like people were dancing in the streets because everyone hated Thatcher so much, because <laughs> everyone was like, oh, Tory rule is finally over. And then Tony Blair totally sold everyone down the river and is now like a multi-millionaire who just swans around pretending to make peace in the Middle East. Like, Yeah, I have to make the point, and this isn't to defend Blair, but <laughs> I went from, me and my mum, my mum was a single mum, yeah. we went from having absolutely nothing to mum getting about £30 extra a week when Blair got, got elected. Yeah. And that, for us was the difference between having fresh veg and not having any vegetables so like I have to make the point that although he is a lot of I think his legacy is a lot to do has a lot to do with the issues that we've got now mm-hmm. it is really important to know I think how the difference in, in labor and conservatism basically even though they they are part of the establishment and they do have caused a lot of problems over the years as someone from a working class background I do believe that a lot of my successes in life wouldn't have happened had under a conservative government so that is important to to highlight however his lies definitely left this gap yeah and everyone you were right BNP filled it UKIP filled it but also if you look at Cameron he thought of Blair as like the master you know like they loved him and in a way like obviously Blair 
didn't have the austerity politics, but their template for how to implement austerity was basically mm-hmm. using Blair's like, there is no alternative. Yeah. We all have to tighten our belts. It's like, yeah, I totally see you tightening your belt, you smug. But you have to understand, like, like you said, nothing's out of context. Everything's out of yeah. kind of history. So yeah. after the years of conservative uh, rule from market factory, we have to understand that at the time, people were looking for a change because we're fed up with minor strikes and riots and the poll tax and all yeah. this kind of stuff. So when someone comes along yeah. and they're offering kind of some kind of a centre-left policy that doesn't seem so austere, you're thinking, yeah, this... Were you in the poll tax riots, do you say? I've literally up the road. <laughs> so you understand, like, yeah. I can understand the context and why people felt a sense of change because it had mm, been yeah. a certain, I can't remember how many years it was. It's basically all my lifetime. 79 to 97. Yeah, so all my lifetime, basically. Yeah, literally. So I, can, I get that. Yeah. But like I said, these the, when you're working class, these things were we, we we never trusted the government, and the trust the government has never restored that trust. Yeah. And in fact, Brexit, Trump are mm. kind of signs of this trust. When so when Trump's mm. thinking he's going to drain the swamp, we're fed up with this kind of oligarchy, this this kind mm. of clique of people that do things for themselves. And so you're willing, you're willing to have people like Nigel Farage, who is <laughs> like a bit of a kind of a slippery weasel. Yeah. But you're willing to have someone even like Nigel Farage, even he has nothing, he has nothing in common with me. He's not working class, doesn't doesn't live in my estate, but I'm willing to have him speak on my behalf because mm-hmm. I think he's speaking for my rights. He's not. Yeah. But it's like Trump as well. He's a billionaire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he has nothing to nothing in common with me, but I'm willing. People are willing to let him speak for them on their behalf because that trust has been damaged that mm-hmm. much. I think also with Farage and like Trump, people feel they would deliver more somehow in their promises <laughs> than other politicians. Like, I don't know, maybe it's the way they speak or like the more simplistic language. I don't know what is it, <laughs> but I think the mistrust is related to just the complete lack of accountability <laughs> and how our politicians have to account. For example, Boris Johnson saying, yeah, you know, the NHS <laughs> promised the Brexit bus, 350 million. We could also have had a bus with EU citizens will be automatically granted and definitely <laughs> to remain. <laughs> if that was on the bus, you know, maybe it will get more attention. So, you know all those promises okay when people voted for brexit and like who is held accountable for those things that affect like the underfunding of the nhs they promise they will fund more they want so and like you know then you have things like carillion and like you know people have been saying that pfi is a total scam for decades and Tony Blair was just like, yeah, this is a great idea because they didn't want to pay out loads of money in the first place. And now it's like part of NHS funding is going to pay companies like Carillion, which cream a huge profit off. Like my dad was telling me about some guy who runs a company building student housing mm-hmm. and they get government contracts to build student housing. He got a £150 million bonus. That is government money for one person you're like you should not be allowed like that it's is a public control. service it's out of control isn't it it's absolutely but this is part of like you know this financial system which we're all told like oh no we can't possibly build more social housing uh, we can't possibly like lay our money for this because you know the market's got to decide everything and it's like that's bullshit and you know it's bullshit it's just that you want your mates to get rich mm. and you couldn't give a toss about everyone else because you think everyone's so stupid they'll keep voting for you this is the, uh, the irony of it all the irony of it it has never been any different it's never been <laughs> as much as we dress it up as much as we like to say we're far more advanced or we're more yeah. civilised this is what happens in countries in Africa this is what happens over here but we dress it up so we have what we have is a rotation of oligarchies so we have small groups of people who want to do things for, to, to maintain their own power yeah. And this has been throughout history. This has always been the same, but just now it's a bit more transparent, mm. and we can we can complain about it. And sometimes, sometimes 
something happens. But all we do at the moment is shift oligarchies. Yeah. So we shift the one group of people to another mm. group of people who've got more money than us and more power. So you mm. think this is just us transferring power to the mm. next oligarchy? To the next group mm. of people who we who we might think are okay. At the moment, we, we don't know. The, the, the reason why Trump's so unsettling, the reason why Brexit's so unsettling, because we're not too sure what group of elites are going to take us over. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so is it going to be a bunch of nutters? or, <laughs> or We don't know. Yeah. So we're kind of uncertain. Because as we know, the tone mm. of a country gets set from the top. So when Trump sets the tone, when he says mm. something's like someone's a shithole country, it sets the tone for the rest of the country. So race becomes a, an issue like that. Yeah. Mm. So you can see how like Corbyn becomes an alternative. Like I've definitely got mixed feelings mm. on Corbynism, but like you can see how the removal of privatisation and public ownership becomes something more desirable and you can see how that might possibly in the future get more votes because are people fed up or will they go to the ballot box and think nah just vote Tory Mm. like what do you know what I mean that's what happens yeah I mean I guess it depends how much I don't know it's hard to say isn't it because ultimately I think one thing we've learned about politics in the past couple of years is that you never really know what affects what and like we're yeah. all trying to come yeah. up with explanations for how voters behave or how people behave or political currents mm. but really we don't it's actually too, know but at the moment hopefully it's uncertainty but uncertainty can only go on for so long because once it starts affecting markets and starts affecting economic confidence that's when people start changing their mind because it will mm. hit them in their pocket yeah. and everyone deals with money Yeah. so uncertainty can only go on for so long because when it starts mm. affecting economic confidence, because economics is basically based on confidence, how much I'm willing to pay for a service or how yeah. much I'm willing to accept for a service. So once it starts damaging that and people don't have confidence in that market, then people decisions will get made. But at the moment, we're uncertain. So, Tiso, what's annoyed you this week? <laughs> Not really what's upset me. I, I suppose it's... I've been kind of a bit more introspective. I've been speaking to one of my friends who is well, he's on his journey to become radicalised. I think you've spoken to us about him before. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have. So he has very extreme views compared to mine. We have opposite views, in fact. So he's, how do I say this nicely? Um, <laughs> anti-immigration, basically anti-everyone who's not British, almost, almost. Is he sexist as well? May possibly, <laughs> quite possibly. I don't, you haven't gone on to that. I haven't, yet. I haven't <laughs> got into it. Yet. I haven't got into it. I haven't really got onto it. But he's the complete opposite mm-hmm. to me. So we are having debates as we normally do, and sometimes they get quite heated. He said something that was not related to my last point, and but my first reaction, I had the kind of classic liberal reaction. I got very excited and tried to say to him, "You're wrong. You're wrong," and I thought that's not right. So I have a feeling that I, if maybe looked at, maybe I have a feeling that as liberals, we, t- we tend to kind of get very upset and want to tell people off and saying that your views are wrong, your views are wrong. And not necessarily, that's not hearing the whole story of why they are behaving a certain way or why they think a certain way. As I've kind of started looking into this, there was this guy in the news today, the tennis player, the American tennis player, what's his name? Tennis? Tennis. Tennis something or the other. I tennis, tennis. Don't know he's, <laughs> but he had posted some tweets on in, on Twitter and they were kind of all right and everyone's getting caught up and but but does posting tweets make you an a, a racist does it make you someone who do it right maybe maybe not it's not it's not it's not a very considered opinion by watching TV program by me watching the news doesn't make me far right does it if it has far right news on it I, I sit and read far right websites every day doesn't make me any a Nazi 
Red Dead Express every day. You have to. It, it, it the comment section. Yeah, it, it doesn't make you that that thing. So maybe it's time to kind of think the liberal media kind of makes you because I've been reading a lot of the Tocqueville and Mill. It made me maybe uh, <laughs> British philosophers. Well, one's French, one's British. Sorry. Okay. So it made me think of the um, the kind of quote the tyranny of the majority. We have a view and we are the majority view and we kind of be it not aggressively sometimes sometimes which is quite what's just uh sadly trying to push people in mm -hmm. a certain direction now because they have different views than us doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong just means they've got a different view yeah yeah i, I was reading uh, john stuart mill on liberty <laughs> like just rereading this and it was like this quote like i don't agree with everything said in in there but in the chapter on freedom of speech, <laughs> uh, liberty of thought and discussion, I think it's, it's called. Uh, and he mentioned that uh, there you can only, even if you think your view is wrong, you can only correct that wrong view by discussion and engagement. And I thought that's like, you know, 200 years ago written, that, it, that's but that's really <laughs> interesting. It's a good idea, yeah. the idea of dead, dog, dead dogmas, right? So Mill was <laughs> dead dogmas. Right? Mill was saying, basically, a truth is only a truth. You have to reveal that truth. So sometimes there's lots of lies, but you have to have, let the lies exist as well. Until so we can discover the truth. So it's like mm. a, a dialectical process, basically. Okay. So are you basically saying that we need to not alienate people that might not have liberal values? And what do we even mean by liberal yeah, anymore? Actually, I, I think I think sometimes it's trying to understand someone who doesn't necessarily agree with you. Now that means taking yourself away from that kind of negative notion of tolerance that we have, which is kind of indifference almost. And trying to truly understand where that person's coming from. Sometimes it's difficult. I see, I literally sit and view, watch it. I was reading a post the other day from the Daily Stormer, and the guy which would, is a far which, right which website. Is, yeah, sorry, it's just a neo-Nazi website. And the guy was saying <laughs> to me, <laughs> he was saying to me, um, what was it saying? Niggers are um, basically stupid monkeys, and they should slavery benefit them. They were better off in America. Uh -huh. Th that usual kind of diatribe. Yeah. So I sit there, and now that is someone who vehemently, vehemently has a, a different opinion than me. But I'm willing to let him have that opinion. I'm willing to try to understand how he came to that opinion. Doesn't mean I necessarily agree with him. I'm never going to agree with him actually. But I'm trying to understand why he feels that way, and I'm trying to understand the historicity. And, and if we can, if we ever can, try to s resolve this, trying to get to a point where we can meet somewhere where we, this is not not a problem, but we can go both go our separate ways. See, I find this really difficult because if someone says something like virulently racist or sexist, I find it really hard to be like, "You're entitled to that opinion," because I just feel like you're not. Like you're so obviously not. But I think there's a difference. I think sometimes it depends how they talk. So my, my friend, when I speak to him, he speaks in a way that he's, he's not using hate speech. So he's not using words designed to hurt me. Mm -hmm. but he's, he's just simply voicing his opinion. When I use that daily storm as an example, maybe it's not a good example. They're using hate speech, which is designed mm -hmm. to hurt people, yeah. which is something different. right? But when people truly have different opinions, I think it's up to us now to try and engage them, talk to mm -hmm. them, because otherwise nothing, nothing changes. If we have to engage these people on a real level mm. and not just talk about it and because our values at the moment liberal values tend to be in ascendancy so we are the hegemonic attitude we're the hegemonic whether does hegemonic mean powerful with the power yeah whether yeah whether whether the kind of yeah, the force it's like yeah the kind of like standard Stand, line yeah the default setting almost yeah. right and everyone else is so they feel that we're they're the other in that case mm. 
I thought you, you had an interesting example mm. of this from your research. Yeah, so I, I think that sometimes if you actually engage with opposing views, like you can influence the other people in a way. I was sat with like a, a family that all who all voted UKIP and we had this conversation and they said quite, you know, some some things that I wouldn't ever agree with about immigration and so on. But uh, of course, I came from like a researcher perspective. I said you can express any views you want mm -hmm. uh, and it was recorded as well for <laughs> for, for my research. Um, and But at the end, before we, we said, uh, I wish them like a nice evening and so on. They said, oh, I actually enjoyed uh, uh, talking to you because uh, it also makes us think about some things. Uh, and they said it's the first time they actually spoke to a Romanian person in like in so in so much detail. Especially there are not a lot of them around that area in in Clacton and don't have a lot of uh, of, of chance to actually engage with migrant voices and perspectives. So I thought it's it's interesting how it makes me think and reflect on some of the issues they raise, mm -hmm. uh, but also it makes them perhaps feel, you know, I bring in the human face of migration a bit more to their lives and they perhaps reflect on some of their views. I'm not sure if it will, it will change anything, <laughs> but yeah. you know, it maybe no, it's... But it's important because it mm. shows that everyone everywhere does this, I think, that people are opposing views to you, so you dehumanize them mm -hmm. because you hate their views so yeah. much. And I think we, you know, we like to think that like, oh, we're not like them, but actually we all do it to each other. And like, you know, the characterization mm -hmm. of Brexiteers as like stupid and ignorant and working class and uneducated, you know, like all that kind of thing, I guess, totally ignores people's agency yeah. and ability to reflect well, on so things. Sometimes you, we, like I said, you, you assume they're going to be a certain way. And one of the things I've kind of felt or found out during my own research is it makes you feel uncomfortable. Yeah putting myself in a situation where I know initially I'm going to hear things that make me feel uncomfortable about myself they're going to say things that necessarily about me they're not necessarily going to have the same view of history as me mm -hmm. so they, they interpret mm -hmm. things differently but the benefit I found is that I try to I see people differently now and I don't mm -hmm. see them as <coughs> so two dimensional so I'm willing to know mm -hmm. that people are different and they're going to take a, sometimes views or take a, have an opinion that's so so unbelievable, mm -hmm. like I don't know, I don't know mm. one of the views that Jews have weaponized black people. <laughs> it sounds insane, but this is a view that I come across quite frequently, and so I speak to people about it and, and how they feel and try to understand historically. And all I'm trying to say to them is, it's fine having that view, but all I want you to do is have balance when you look at your view. Yeah. And Will, and my friend said to me, one of the things he's got from me is that he goes when he does things now, he looks for proof. He looks to try and to justify his opinion. Mm. And that's what I, that's what I, that's what I would. That's what <laughs> I, I my, so my my I agree with what you're saying, T. But I think the thing that I struggle with, and particularly with regards to anti-immigrant sentiment and notions around Brexit, mm. etc is the power involved so who gets the opportunity to voice these opinions and then who is ultimately influenced by them so by that i'm talking about people within the establishment like mm. boris johnson david davis jacob reese mogg nigel farage these people that are able to frame basically racist mm. narratives mm. without taking any responsibility for it and then ultimately making people feel like outsiders and making people hate on yeah. different groups of people. It frustrates me so much. I think um, that, that's to do with like populist government. They, they tap into mm. something that they can see, but I think if we, if we bring out things like this from into the open, it's harder for them to tap into. They can tap into it because it, it, it's an undercurrent and they pull out a sense of feeling, they pull out a sense of urgency. People, 
attached to that and they get emotional about it. Mm. But like, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, but I just think when those particular people that I've just mentioned, when they're saying stuff publicly, which is so obviously racist mm-hmm. and anti-immigrant, they're not thinking, I wonder whether um, a woman's going to get attacked based on the anti-immigrant sentiment that I'm... Yeah, but I think the I'm, difference is between what Tuesday's talking about and what you're talking about maybe is that people like that, like Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, whatever, are, there's like a much greater element of like cynically trying to manipulate opinion. The reason they hold opinions or don't hold opinions is I think much more about like, how can I get people on my side? Whereas maybe most people don't say things like, you know, maybe you're having an argument with an individual trying to convince them of something, but you're not like, it's not propaganda in the same way. No, but I guess maybe people that have the extreme views are like, well, Boris Johnson, he's a foreign secretary, he's allowed to say racist stuff. Yeah. Like, it's sort of, I don't know, it I feel like it legitimizes yeah. it. Yeah. And that's, I guess, why I find the imbalance I'm gonna, I'm gonna quite difficult. I think now, now more than ever, get these things out in the open. Listen, I've known for years that Britain was racist. I've known for years. It's not <laughs> new, it's not, it's not. No, But people, right. people lie to me. You don't lie to me, because I saw this, but you lied to me. Now it's in the open. It's about discussing this freely and open. Sexism, listen, if you're a woman, you know these things existed yeah. for ages. You know about all these things. It's not new to you. Yeah. It's not new how men manipulate women. But now it's in the open, we can talk about it. So it's, there's no lies anymore. So it's, mm. if, once we start pushing things undercover, people can tap into it. Yeah, but now yeah, these things yeah. are in the open, no one can lie to you anymore because it's there. And yeah. but, but the thing is, we've always known it was there, but now it's there. And that's a good thing. It's a good place to start. Because for once, we can have these awkward conversations we can all could, so I can say to Nigel Farage, why are you doing this? Why are you actually doing this? You're just stirring up racial hate. Well, I know you are. You know you are. Let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I think with Farage is an interesting example because like there's on the one hand like the mainstream media allowing so much airtime to voices such as Farage, mm-hmm. so they run over time in a program where Farage expresses his views, but they can't run a minute over supposedly in the BBC Question Time where a new migrant mm-hmm. expresses their their view. And how many but, times has yeah. Nigel Farage been on the unelected <laughs> seven times failed? UKIP leader. Not who even UKIP leader. It's not even UKIP leader. No. What's UKIP leader? <laughs> like, this UKIP gets leader. so much coverage. Yeah. I mean, it's entitled to his, you know, his view and so on, but, like, you know, the amount of coverage is not proportional with, like, other people, like, who yeah. are, you know, completely sidelined or not represented at all yeah. or very represented very little. But then again, the fact that we don't really engage with opposing views as a society overall, like, this means that people listen to Farage and think, yeah, yeah right. I can't express my views. Like, those people, like, I interviewed some you keep supporters and they were saying we can't even speak about this that we speak with you uh, (laughs) i.e. with me in the pub because people will call us racist Racist. and so Mm -hmm. on so they actually sometimes I I interview in people's homes just because they feel they can't even like meet Mm -hmm. me in a cafe and express whatever is on their mind and I think you know when those people think see Farage and on the TV mm-hmm. like yeah you know finally finally a guy that yeah. agrees with me you know I'll vote for this party and I think you know perhaps if we engage more maybe the opinions wouldn't be that extreme but, that's yeah. what I'm saying I think I, I agree with Alex so I think we're saying it's probably the same thing I think because we start we have a, a habit of throwing these labels around it devalues them now so when everyone thinks I'm a racist I'm a racist it devalues it and so no one really knows what a racist is anymore. And that lets mm. that lets undercover racism exactly. go unnoticed. So, so we, yeah. we devalue these words because people are scared to speak or speak their mind. Listen, it's not about the issue of freedom of speech, right? So you can't just say what you want, right? Because freedom of speech comes comes with responsibilities and duties, right? So there's no such thing as total freedom. So you have to qualify that. 
but people should have that environment where they can debate and talk about issues that matter to them. That's the whole point of this, not of this, of the, our society. We've come to a point where we should be able to talk about stuff in a kind of mature, we don't have to go fighting each other or smashing things up, but talk about things freely. Because if we don't, we end up in echo chambers, we end up on Facebook, we end up in Instagram, talking to people that agree with us and breeding hate. We are on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what happens. And like, my friend is a classic example of this. Mm. He's gone off into a Facebook wilderness with other people like-minded and they say the same thing over yeah. and over and over mm. again. And when I've asked him to justify that, now he can't because he's gone so far gone. I say to him X and he sends me Y. And it's got nothing yeah. to do with what mm. I said. Cross purposes, yeah. Yeah, I think it's good to, to engage with, the, for example, like my, my partner sided with, with Liv and he's a conservative and I'm like not. And I think, you know, like when I just go to UCL and everyone shares quite the same opinions and then I go home and I have like quite a different perspective. Like also my research, it makes me reflect on my research, on my interactions in Clacton and so on. So I think it's good to have... Uh, those different spheres of interactions of political views and yeah and it's interesting because after Brexit after the referendum a lot of posts on social media and like Facebook Twitter that people like divorced or broke up because one voted leave and one voted mm -hmm. remain uh, so that's really interesting how you know the issue of how politically mixed couples can survive or not after like you know <laughs> this kind of decisive <laughs> referendum because some people did break up and some people didn't so yeah. like it's really interesting how it influenced <laughs> those things. You've been listening to Surviving Society with Saskia, Chantel, Tiso and Alex. We'll be back every two weeks so don't forget to subscribe.